and welcome to MonarCast. I'm Claire. I'm Allie. And today we are leaving the cloudy shores of the United Kingdom and heading into the sun, into the east, to the land of the rising sun. Yeah, I was going to say the cloudy shores of Japan, but that's only because I went there in the winter, so... <laughs> it is the land um, of the rising sun. Did I, did I get that right? No, it is. And okay. that's, well, that's because they're like the easternmost, you know, monarch island nation, I think. So they, they face the east. But um, yeah, so we are going to be talking about Japan, which I'm actually really excited to talk about. Um, but first, we are going to linger a little bit in the UK because you said you had some royal oops from last time. Oh, yeah. I just have a few things that I wanted to clarify. If you listened to our hour and 40 plus minute long episode, kudos to you. Thank you for sticking around. (laughs) 30 minutes of that was gossip. So yeah, it was a lot. Um, There were just a few things we breezed through and I felt like weren't properly explained. So I just wanted to mention them. And God knows if there was anything else, please let us know. Um, the first I wanted to mention was the Duke of Rothsey, Rothsey. We mentioned that a lot, um, but we weren't really sure what that was. And I said, I thought it was Charles's Scottish title. And I just wanted to mention that that is in fact the case. Um, it is the title reserved for the heir apparent of the throne. Um, it is the Scottish title. It used to be the dukedom of Uh, reserved for the Scottish heir apparent when there was still a separate Scottish monarchy. But now that we've had the unification, it goes with the Duke of Cornwall and Prince of Wales to the heir apparent of the English throne. So I just wanted to clarify that. Um, I've picked my five most favorite, most egregious royal oops, just so you know. (laughs) Um, There there were more than five. (laughs) Most likely. I mean, there were just... mm, some areas where we we breezed through a lot of that the second is I just wanted to talk about we had talked about the Duke of Lancaster and how Queen Elizabeth is the Duke of Lancaster it's kind of interesting um it's definitely a revenue generating duchy for her and in Lancaster she's you know affectionately referred to as the Duke of Lancaster um but That has been a title that has been merged with the crown for a really long time. And we were talking about the War of the Roses and we said, you know, oh, the Lancastrians won the war. This must be related to that. And I just wanted to clarify that this title has been merged with the crown since the time of Henry V, who was the father of Henry VI, who was the king that was overthrown um, you know, when the War of the Roses first started. And to be clear, I don't know if we were saying the Lancastrians won the War of the Roses, just that when they... Well, they did, first of no, all. The yes. The Yorkists won. No, Henry Henry Seventh was a Lancastrian. He married oh, Elizabeth that's right, of York. Oh, that's right. Oh, my gosh. This is why yes. we get ourselves yes. in trouble. <laughs> but I just wanted to mention that since the time of Henry V, he was the last Duke of Lancaster... Um, on his own and then when he took the throne the duchy merged with the crown and it's been there ever since so as which a result, really his taking the throne was sort of the very 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 early beginnings of the sparks of the wars of the Roses. yes so as a result of that the duchy of lancaster has belonged to the sovereign ever since 
Um, next, I briefly talked about Princess Michael of Kent, and I said something about how I don't know why she doesn't use the Duchess of Kent. She has no right to that because it's her brother-in-law who's the Duke of Kent, not her husband. So I just wanted to clarify mm. that I just misspoke there. That's why there. she's Princess Michael of Kent because he's not the Duke of Kent, but he is a prince. Yes, and her, I think she is actually a baroness or the daughter of a baron, but she chooses to go by Princess Michael because... She prefers to be a princess. Yes. Um, Next, I just wanted to talk about the Duke of York. We had talked about this is the title mostly most often conferred on the second son of the sovereign. But it, it, it would actually be what's interesting is from what I read, I believe it would actually be an inherited dukedom had Andrew had male heirs. So, okay, he only has daughters so as a result it will revert to the crown when he dies and be available for whoever is next in line at that time be it George or um, maybe if William is the king it could be Louis so it, it'll probably be available by the time that happens and then lastly speaking of the younger generation um i meant to talk about this and i just didn't get to it in all of our um lengthy lengthy discussions but i just wanted to talk about um the young the young little sussex baby here archie mountbatten windsor and why he's not prince archie we talked about the fact that he was not entitled to the title of prince but i read a lot this week about people being kind of up in arms about this and they are of course you know it depends on what side of all of this gossip you fall on but a lot of people apparently seem to be taking this as a slight to harry and megan so if if you're listening and that's you i just wanted to reiterate the fact that the children of harry aren't entitled to the title of prince due to the 1917 letters pit patent but also the fact is that as the son of a duke he would be entitled and I don't think we talked about this he would be entitled to a courtesy title and you mentioned this a little bit in our last episode about courtesy titles and the idea of a courtesy title is it's not a title that you're necessarily yet vested in but you can use it so Archie's father is a duke he is entitled as a courtesy to use his next highest ranking title which be the which would be the Earl of Dumberton but Harry and Meghan have notably chosen not to style him this way so I read a lot about how like oh well when Charles becomes king he'll be a prince so it won't matter first of all that absolutely it's not necessarily true that absolutely rests on the idea of Charles taking the throne which conceivably if his mother lives for another 10 years he may not outlive her. He probably will, given the genes in that family, but it's not a guarantee. And even though when Charles does take the throne, yes, as a grandchild of the monarch, he would be entitled to that title. If his if his parents choose not to style him that way, there's precedent for that. If you look at Edward and Sophie, that's what they've done with their children. So mm. most likely, I think this is a situation where it's a begin as you mean to go on type of situation so the fact that they're not titling him as the earl of dumberton they haven't requested the prince title elizabeth probably would have given it to them if they really wanted it makes me think that when charles takes the throne 
it's unlikely he'd be styled in the role of prince. And let's not forget, one day down the road, this child will be the Duke of Sussex. So it's not like he's missing out completely. So if you were wondering about that, that's probably how it's all going to play out. Yeah, and to the greater picture of this family, he doesn't need to be a prince. Like, this family already has multiple heirs in line in the Cambridge side that are going to carry on this tradition. Think, like, of, think this, about it this, this way. This kid can have a normal life if he wants Think one. about it this way. When William is king, you know, right now Elizabeth is the queen, does anyone ever really talk about Princess Margaret's children? Not well, no, really. they also didn't get titles, but, did they? Well, they're lord and lady. Yeah, but, but they're, yeah. But when when William is king, he's going to have at least three children of his own. I think this is smart. You know, by the time all of that happens, this this child will more than likely be somewhat of a private citizen. So it's smart to set him up that way from the very beginning. Yeah, and the only reason not to do it that way would be if you felt that the in the future the monarchy was going to need him to carry on some sort of tradition, but absolutely they won't. So. Yeah. So, Which and I think lucky for him. What I've been reading <laughs> online is I think, you know, Harry and Meghan are really popular and so people are sort of appalled that this child is not equivalent with George, Charlotte, and Louis, but I think you have to look at this 1917 letters letters patent you have to look at the family dynamics and you have to look at the hierarchy of the monarchy it's, and the wishes of the parents and the wishes of the parents yes just because if you're out there and you're mad just because you wanted him to be a prince doesn't mean that harry and megan wanted him to be a prince so i just wanted to bring that up because i read like at least three articles about that this week and i couldn't really understand it and so i felt like when we did our episode i didn't really explain the situation as clearly as we could have so I just wanted to clarify that from the go speaking of articles that you were reading do you have any gossip I feel like we covered so much of it last time that we're probably caught up not much has happened since we talked last week so I think we recorded on Wednesday it's only been a few days so yeah but speaking of gossip I today's Um, episode is really based on something that could have been just a gossip item for us or or like an interesting news item but the more I read about it and the more I thought about it the more I thought you know what I actually really want to cover this in a full episode because it's fascinating and it's a really interesting counterpart to what we've been talking about in England specifically when we talk about titles and who's allowed to be called what and who's carrying on the family tradition you know England definitely has a very clear hierarchy and they're carrying it on a specific way. When we look at today's subject, the Japanese imperial family, they're actually doing something similar, but also very different. And it's a very interesting case study in two families heading into like the modern age with this sort of archaic way of ruling. And I really wanted to talk about it. So in case you hadn't heard, on April 30th of this year, Japan's emperor formally abdicated his throne, which we might not hear a lot about the Japanese imperial family, or some people might not even be aware that Japan has an imperial family, but this is kind of a big deal, especially in Japan. Yeah, so now my, I admittedly don't know very much about the Japanese monarchy is it still a monarchy if we're talking about an emperor 
yes, it's a monarchy. It's just they're styling themselves as emperor instead of king because at the time of the Japanese empire, we're talking about early 20th century, you know, they were ruling other lands outside of Japan or very much trying to rule other lands outside of Japan. Gotcha. Um, it's kind of, they're still styling themselves emperor in the way that, say, Victoria was the Empress Victoria, but she was really the last monarch of England to fully embrace that title. Okay. So the only thing I really know about them is that they have a lot of rules and tradition means a lot and it's a very, very isolated and insulated family. Yes. So their history and all of it, I will, we'll talk a little bit about, or maybe a lot about their recent history. But first off, I really want to mention that the Imperial House of Japan, which might also be referred to as just the Imperial Family or formerly the Yamato Dynasty or sometimes referred to as the Chrysanthemum Throne, is actually the oldest continuous monarchy in the world. So no kidding. this family has been running for 15 centuries and counting on the throne. 15 centuries? 15 centuries. So they date the start of this back to uh, about 600. Now, is that... Can I ask a question, and maybe you'll get into this later, but I'm just curious because I know a little bit about Japanese culture. Is this continuous father to legitimate son, or is this the no. use of so you can have as many children that. as you want? So yes, we will definitely talk about that because this is the longest running continuous monarchy through the male line, but the way that you go about this is not always through your the sons of your spouse, like the the queen or empress or whoever at the time um, might not always be the one to bear the heir to the throne. Gotcha. Yeah. And we will talk about that because actually the shifting of how they go about that is sort of leading to some problems for them in the modern age. But I also think they're an interesting one to talk about because while they are the long, technically the longest continuous monarchy in the world, I think a lot of people might not be aware that Japan has a monarchy because much like, say, um, England or Sweden or Denmark or other modern countries that have, you know, monarchies kind of in the background as figureheads, the Japanese imperial family is operating in much the same capacity. But that's a very recent development, relatively speaking, because the imperial family's experience in the 20th century has been really interesting and not always a result of internal factors, but a lot of external pressure as well. Like I mentioned, they're trying to modernize and bring this 21st century idea of royalty and figure out how to function in that way and like how to ensure the future of their dynasty. But they've also had to do this in a way when the monarchy is trying to be this symbol of a new path forward for an entire country. And when I talk about that, that sounds very vague, but what I really want to talk about is specifically the emperor and World War II. Okay. Because that's really where this shift happens where, you know, we think of Western culture after World War II as a really big shift, right? Like that's the modern era really began in the 50s and trying to move out of the remains of this war. And that's very much the case for Japan, but their recovery from the war was maybe a little different because they lost the war. So um, because of this, in a way, this monarchy is old, but it's also very new. 
So I want to talk a little bit about where the monarchy was at the end of World War II and the effect of it. And just a brief history in case I'm referring to World War II as this known quantity and you don't know the... Um, World War II was fought on two fronts, uh, the Allies fighting in Europe, but also in the Pacific, specifically against the threat of Japan and this idea that Japan wanted to, again, this empire, they wanted to expand their power across the world, most notably bombing Pearl Harbor in 1941, bringing the U.S. into World War II. And when all the battles were fought and the dust is settled, Japan was not on the, on the winning side. And the emperor actually bore a lot of the blame for this. So the Japanese monarchy at the time of World War II, so we're talking 1945 at the end of the war, was actually among the wealthiest in the world. Um, the emperor actually, as a very wealthy man, was also revered by his people. His rule was very much very real. He wasn't a figurehead. He was running the country. And like I said, because of this, he bore much of the blame for Japan's actions in the war and in fact was blamed personally for extending the war longer after it was clear that Japan was likely not going to be victorious um, and ended the lives of more Japanese soldiers and specifically civilians unnecessarily. You know, we think about the two atomic bombs dropped on Japan in 1945 and a lot of people felt that had he just capitulated and surrendered earlier, that might never have happened. Hmm, interesting. Whether that's fair to blame one man or not, I, you know, don't know. I don't know about, I don't know enough about the internal uh, politics of Japan at the time and how much the military was also separately, you know, whether they were following one man's orders or, you know, if it was a collaborative effort. But as a result of all of this, when the Allies won the war, the pressure was on for Hirohito to be indicted as a war criminal. Um, leading intellectuals in Japan called for him to step down and abdicate his throne. Some members of the royal family even urged this as well. They felt that a regency for his son would be much better for the country because he could not be blamed for the war. Um, you know, the future of the monarchy was uncertain because if the head of your monarchy is being blamed for this entire debacle of losing a world war, how do you continue the monarchy, you know? Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of questions, but I suppose fortunately for the emperor at the time, and we're talking about 1945, so Japan's emperor was Hirohito, the U.S. had other ideas. So specifically General MacArthur, who was leading the uh, American occupation of Japan after the war, decided that Hirohito was going to be an advantage for him. He saw the emperor as key to demilitarizing Japan and remaking it into a democracy. Like he could take this man who was already revered by his people and turn him into a figurehead for a new democratic Japan. Uh, but this also meant that going forward, the new Japanese monarchy could not be allowed to continue the way that it was. You know, like I said at, at the time, at the end of the war, this monarchy was very powerful. They were very wealthy. They'd been on the throne for almost 15 centuries at this point. They were very much entrenched in the Japanese culture. Um, in fact, in Japan, the emperor was not just a person. He was a god. Like, the people worshipped him, much like you know, people go to church now and worship God, they worship their emperor. Um, in fact, when Hirohito went on the radio to announce the surrender of Japan, it was the first time that the Japanese people had ever heard his voice. So this goes into this idea of it's very insular. Yes. I mean, it might not be that strange in 1945 to 
have never heard your leader's voice. I mean, radio is mm. newish at the time. That's, you know, but he didn't speak in public. He didn't do engagements. He wasn't a public figure. He was just this emperor, you know, in his tower or his palace, okay. I should say. Yeah. But all of this is changing, obviously. So in 1947, two years after the war, a new constitution is enacted that stripped the emperor of his divine status and turned him into a figurehead instead of an actual ruler. You know, they instituted a parliament, democracy came to Japan, um, and now the emperor is the symbol of the state and the unity of the people. So he's more, I mean, he, it's very much the way Elizabeth functions in her role. You know, she's a figurehead of state and, and is supposed to be serving the people. And the other members of the family, same thing. They have no official role in government, but they do perform ceremonial and social duties. So it's really not that different than, say, the role that we see in these Western countries. It's just a little bit more controlled by the state. Uh, because also, at this time, the imperial states, in 1947, the emperor's personal fortune was estimated at about $17 million in 1946, which would be about over 600 million today. So he was a very wealthy man. All of these estates and personal fortune were transferred to state or private ownership, with the exception of the family was allowed to keep about 7,000 acres of land holdings. Only um, 7,000 acres. Only 7,000, but con considering what they started with, it's, I mean, they, you know, personally owned like half of Japan. Hmm. So it's really not that much. And to compare to these numbers, when Hirohito died in 1989, he left a personal fortune of 11 million. So he started out with, you know, 17 million in 1946 dollars, 40 years later had 11 million dollars. And in 2017, his son was estimated to be worth about 40 million. I mean, these aren't poor people, but their fortune and their land holdings were greatly reduced in 1947. And in fact, the imperial properties are now all owned by the state, including the primary properties that are the Tokyo and Kyoto imperial palaces. So the families still live in the palace, especially in Tokyo, but they don't own it. Okay. But I think that's kind of the case. Isn't that the case with Buckingham Palace? Yeah, I think the government... Or the Crown Estate owns Buckingham Palace, but the government owns the Crown Estate or some, something like that. Like it's, you can, it's almost like a life estate. Like you can use it while you're alive, but you don't own it. Right. So not only is the emperor stripped of his divinity, basically his job role, his function changes, he's lost a bit of his fortune. But this also had a lot of implications for his extended family as well. So I mentioned that MacArthur felt that the emperor was this key figurehead to preventing a future militarized Japan. I mean, remember, the whole problem with the war is Japan's army is going out there and invading and killing a bunch of, you know, people as, well, you know, that's fair. That was on both sides. But, um, but there's this fear of this future militarized Japan that might try to repeat this. So to prevent this... And also specifically to prevent any offshoot branches of the imperial family from getting any ideas about trying to do this, all 11 collateral branches of the imperial family were abolished. So that meant that 51 members of the family in 1947 renounced their imperial status and became ordinary citizens. Now, if you think about growing up in an imperial family where the head of your family is a god and you're essentially a demigod by association, this is a huge deal. Yeah. 
now you're like your just, entire you're reason just for yes your entire like status on earth has been completely upended and what this meant was now that the imperial family shrank considerably it was limited pretty much only to the emperor's immediate family so that would be his mother uh his siblings his children and his siblings children Likely at this time, you know, he had two sons, so it was pretty clear that one of his sons was going to be the future emperor, especially now that you've eliminated any other contenders. And also his son is now being put in an American school and he's being groomed for America's vision of Japanese, of the the future of Japan. It's amazing to me that this, I mean, it's not amazing that this happened. Like if you think about World War II, I mean, like occupations afterwards, these Governments that lost the war had very little say in what was going to happen and probably at this point were relieved to hold on to any semblance of the monarchy. But, I mean, this is... I don't think I can overstate this. Yeah, no, it's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, they're basically telling an entire family, sorry, you're not what you thought you were. You're not (laughs) Um, that special. Yeah, and there were some consequences from this. So I mentioned these collateral branches of the imperial family. A few of them actually became extinct in the male line throughout the decades. And there are still many former living, or many, I should say, living former members, not formerly living, living former members of the imperial family. Um, But I think as of recent years, there were only about 18 members of the actual imperial family. Hmm. So compare that to the house of Mountbatten-Windsor, right? I mean, we were talking about this last time with the titles. They've become quite large. And that's not something that's happened to the Japanese family, in part because this restriction of um, the laws that were enacted in um, 1947 were specifically designed to reduce the size of the imperial family and to keep it small. But it's 18 people compared to like 50 something extended members on the British side. I don't know. Maybe the, maybe England should consider something like this. Well, I think this is, (laughs) I mean, you know, comparatively, this is sort of Charles's idea is he's, he wants to streamline it. Yeah. I mean, he's not being, I, let's also be clear that this was done to Japan by an outside power. So America was fully, in control of this situation. America wrote the constitution or helped write the constitution and all of this is to is built to be in line with that new constitution that was enacted in 1947. I also want to mention that notably this limiting of the family happened specifically by excluding the women. So official membership of the imperial family is limited to the male line descendants of the emperor Taisho, who was Hirohito's father. And so to do this, this explicitly excludes all females who marry outside of the imperial family and then their descendants. So you could be a female and say if you marry your cousin or something, you could stay in the imperial family. But otherwise, once you get married, you're no longer considered part of the an imperial member of the family. I'm sure your parents like still talk to you. You know, you just don't have an imperial title. Um, and your children definitely won't as well. And we will come back to that because that will have significant consequences for Japan. So that's not really a bio, but that's really where the imperial family was at the end of World War II and at the time when Hirohito was ruling. So obviously now it's, well, I'm not going to do that math really quickly. This is at least, what, 60 years later? 
70? 70 years later. Thank you. Um, so we're clearly not talking about, when we talk about the emperor today, we are 80? not talking about Hirohito. 80 years? What what year was no. it? 45? 45. We're okay, talking yeah, 70 like 74 years. 74 years. years. Yeah. yeah. We're obviously talking about a different emperor now. So um, as I mentioned briefly before, Hirohito's eldest son, Akihito, was the heir apparent to this dynasty, and he was groomed pretty much from that moment on to become the successor to his father. In fact, I read this story. So the New York Times just recently had a whole series about the family in light of the abdication, and I read something that honestly was very touching to me. So Akihito was 11 years old in 1945 when Japan surrendered. He heard his father announce this on the radio And this is someone who was raised from birth to be the imperial prince. His father had been revered as a god, and he's 11 years old, and all of a sudden his future is totally different. In fact, he wrote in his diary after the surrender, I think I must work harder from now on. (laughs) It's just like the idea of this 11-year-old boy like fully grasping the situation and understanding that what that means for him is that he has to give everything he has to this new role. It's like the understatement of the century. Oh, I'm just going to have to work harder. I'm about to be the I know, but I just like, I feel how how self-aware must that have been for an 11-year-old to do that? Yeah. And it seems like he really meant it. So, you know, he took the throne in 1989 when Hirohito died. And the hallmark of his reign was essentially this long campaign that he and his wife carried out to repent, essentially, for Japan's wartime sins. His public relations face on this whole job was, I'm going to go out into the world and I'm going to say I'm sorry. Um, after he became emperor, he traveled across Asia. So he went to China, Indonesia, Malaysia, Palau, the Philippines, Saipan, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. And all of these countries were victims of Japan's wartime aggressions. So he would go there and he would honor the Japanese war dead because obviously Japan lost a lot of soldiers there as well. But he would also pay tribute to the people from these countries that had been lost as well. And then he would promise that Japan would never repeat the past. I mean, this, he was essentially going on an I'm sorry tour, you know. And his pacifist message was vital to rehabilitating Japan's image abroad, and it was very well received. I mean, everybody likes an apology, right? Mm. Um, but it was much less popular at home. So there was divided opinion about this idea that Japan needed to go out and apologize for essentially half a century. And it's really interesting because the emperor is barred from participating in politics, but these actions that he, Akihito, did through these goodwill tours really served as an effective check on Japan's far right. Um, I think like all countries, Japan is not immune to nationalism and traditionalists who don't always want to take the country in the same direction as the world seems to be moving. So these people revered the monarchy, but they did not like the nation for getting its past. Like they felt this capitulation was turning its back on Japan's proud history and also capitulating too much over their war actions. They really felt like it wasn't fair. And this has carried even into modern times. So In 2015, the Prime Minister of Japan pushed through legislation that could potentially allow a Japanese military to fight in foreign conflicts. I mentioned Japan was very much demilitarized after World War II, so their military was almost completely abolished, and this would reverse this enough for Japan to take place in like peacekeeping operations. 
But even that, in his annual address that year, that he gives every year on the anniversary of the surrender of Japan, Akihito added this phrase where he said, Reflecting on our past and bearing in mind the feelings of deep remorse, I earnestly hope that the ravages of war will never be repeated. And he's repeated this deep remorse line every year since 2015, and many people have seen this as a rebuke of this decision to bring any military back into Japan. Interesting. So he can't come out and say he disagrees with it. Right. But what he's saying through this is that you know, I hope the ravages of war will never be repeated is I think what he's saying is this is a slippery slope to, you know, we start adding our military into other countries' operations, but then where do we stop deciding that we deserve to have, you know, I think he really was trained from this very young age that Japan's path forward in the world is a peaceful nation. You know, this shame over what happened in World War II and they need to stay on that path. So whether that continues, I don't know, but I do think it's a very interesting contrast to his father who really had not, he really didn't have any remorse over his actions in, in World War II and, you know, didn't want to abdicate. And, you know, I don't know what he felt about his son going out into the world and, you know, embarking on these goodwill tours because they were happening while his father was still on the throne. Um, but it's really interesting that this man, you know, was sort of the this peaceful mouthpiece for Japan. Also, the way he was different from his father was he married a commoner. Did he? He did. So he married um, Princess Michiko, um, or Michiko. I'm never sure about the um, which syllable to put the stress on. I think it's Michiko. Um, after meeting her on a tennis court, they got engaged despite objections of traditionalists, including his mother, the empress, because Michiko was the daughter of a wealthy industrialist, so her family definitely came from money, but she wasn't of noble birth, so she was actually the first commoner to marry into the imperial family in centuries. So it was kind of a big deal. Um, And also, part of their wedding was televised, which was the first for Japan, and they essentially became celebrities and symbols in their own right, Um, And also idea like a symbol of this new modern royalty in Japan. So they had two boys and a girl. They all spoke English and they redefined what it meant to be royal. You know, they were out in the world being seen by the people, unlike his father, who no one ever heard his voice until he had to surrender World War II. And when did he take the throne? Akihito? Yeah. Yeah. In 1989. 1989. Okay. So when he got married, it was still... I think they got married in like 1982 or something. Okay. Yeah. No, that's not right. That can't be right. Because, yeah, they didn't get married in 1982. (laughs) They got married like probably in the 50s or 60s. Okay. Okay. But Um, relatively soon after all of this happened. Yeah, yeah. No, it must have been at least late 50s or the 60s because that's that's also when princess margaret got married and remember her wedding was the first televised royal wedding in england as well so the same thing is happening yes but it's it's probably 15 years after the end of the war gotcha um yeah it's so they're they're really going out becoming this these symbols in if we think about the 60s and 70s it's a very interesting time for the whole world 
But like I said, they have two boys and a girl. So who are we talking about next? We're going to move on to their eldest son, uh, Naruhito, the crown prince. And it's interesting because, and now granted, I didn't do a ton of biography research, but my understanding is a lot of his coverage has really revolved around this idea of the succession of the monarchy. So remember back a few minutes ago when I was talking about the restriction of the size of the monarchy to 18 current members and specifically the exclusion of female members of the family. Mm -hmm. So Naruhito is really where all of this begins to focus as a potential problem right. for, the mon for the imperial family because he also needs a son. Now he's got a brother and so his father's succession is secured. He's got an heir and a spare, but his own heir doesn't have an heir. So they're kind of worried about this. Um, like I said, so I'm sure he's got a lot of other good qualities, but by the time he came along, his duty and the focus on him by the press seems to mostly be about how he's continuing the family line. Okay, because we talked about this a little bit, but it has to be with his spouse. Yes. So I'll get to that in a okay. minute. Um, but yes, he does specifically need to produce an heir with the woman that he chooses to marry. Gotcha. Uh, yes. Jeez, what a, a concept. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It, I mean, in, in some ways, it's almost very modern of Japan in a way, right? Because they're getting rid of this idea of like the, the emperor or the princes can just like have a token official wife and then just kind of run around and do whatever, which when we, we've talked a lot about um, the history of monarchy, that's definitely not the case for the men. Okay. But no, they, and, and, and interestingly, the Japanese family, and maybe it's because of some of these rules, or maybe they're just really good people. They seem to be, um, from what I've been reading, but, you know, they have really not been plagued by the scandals that the, the British family have seen, and, and, you know, or maybe the Monaco family, and, you know. Well, I don't think their press coverage is as rabid. They definitely have press coverage, but I also think that they just aren't getting out there into the same scandals. Hmm. So, like I said, um, Akihito's eldest son, Naruhito, is the heir apparent, and he does seem to be a symbol of this modern imperial family. He studied history at Oxford, which I thought was really interesting because how do you want your heir to never forget the lessons of the past? You have him study history. Yeah, <laughs> um, and Western history. <laughs> And Western history at that, right? So he's got the other side of the coin there, and he's popular. Um, the problem is, though, that he really takes his time in finding a bride. So by the late 1980s, you know, his grandfather is still on the throne, but it's very clear that his health is failing. His father's going to ascend to the throne. The pressure is now on for him to marry and produce a male heir. So royal matchmakers are on it, right? Like they compile dossiers on almost 200 women, complete with photo. Uh, these are daughters of Japanese nobility, the wealthy or the educated elite. They're not even limiting themselves to nobility at this point. Um, I think the problem also is that there just isn't a lot of nobility left, right? Yeah. Um, it's kind of, I mean, that I was thinking about that when there was this stink about Akihito marrying a commoner and it's like, well, you kind of eliminated half the nobility in one fell swoop how's he supposed to marry someone who's not a commoner but anyway so he doesn't hit it off with any of these women and fears really start to grow that his failure to marry might jeopardize the monarchy um and 
after Akihito finally ascends the throne in 1989, like I said, these fears are only intensifying because the crown prince doesn't have an heir. Oh my God, what are we going to do? And it really didn't help that his younger brother got married in 1990 because he was tired of waiting on his older brother. And so he, you know, impulsively marries his college sweetheart. Who is, is um, she also a commoner? Yes. Okay. So they're all commoners at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone knew that he wanted to marry her, but they were supposed to wait for his brother. But he's kind of like, I mean, when's this guy going to pick a bride? Um, But Naruhito is determined to choose his own bride, and he doesn't really care about the same things that these royal matchmakers really care about. So he doesn't care about her family pedigree. He doesn't care about her height. He's notably only 5'4", so they were worried about finding him a bride that was taller than him. Um, Or he didn't even care what school she had attended. But unknown to the press at the time, he kind of already has his eye on someone. She just really isn't reciprocating. So he's holding out for this one woman. Um, her name is Masako Awada. She's a diplomat's daughter who also wants to become a diplomat herself. So she's not necessarily looking to marry the crown prince of Japan. Um, she had graduated from an American public high school. She went to Harvard. And also she's taller than 5'4". So <laughs> maybe not everyone's idea of a perfect bride but she also at this point had a career in the foreign ministry so if she's not interested in marrying him he claimed he might not marry at all which obviously isn't what everyone wants to hear that's not allowed right it's definitely not the ideal scenario for his parents but everyone kind of helps him out they're colluding to get her to go out with him you know they're like okay if this is the one that you want then we're going to try to make this happen so by 1992 Various diplomats, including her father, were involved in this effort to, like, get her to go on a date with him. And I'm only really going off on this tangent because I actually love this story. So she agrees to tea with him. And then two months later, less than two months later, they met again. So I wasn't really clear if they had not met in the intervening time. Because when they meet again, he proposes. So he's 32 by this point. So so he's not, like, that old. He's not that old, but I was, you know, what I was really reminded of was all those stories we were talking about um, with Prince Charles, where the press was kind of freaked out, like, when's he going to settle down and get married? It's kind of the same thing. I think she was about 28 at the time. Um, She asked for time to think about it. You know, she would be giving up kind of a lot Mm. to, um, to marry him. She'd be giving up her career for this constrained, you know, very public life. And also life at court could be really tough. So Naruhito's mother, um, Empress Mishiko, had once suffered a breakdown due to bullying by her mother-in-law and others who resented her commoner roots. And so Masako, as a commoner herself, knew that this was a likely scenario. Although hopefully Empress Mishiko would be nice to her, (laughs) given their shared positions. But also, like I said, she's 28, so she knew that her future was going to be limited anyway, even if she said no. So she she had this burgeoning career as a diplomat, but that meant that her likely next next position was going to be an overseas posting. That's also going to limit her marriage prospects in Japan. And ultimately, she's going to have to choose between career and family anyway. I mean, Japanese society is notoriously, um, I don't, what do I want to say? They have some old gender notions. So the woman is usually going to be the one staying home and taking care of the children anyway. So really, I think she thought about it and she thought, hey, I like this guy. What how different is my life really going to be with him than it would be anyway? Um, So she said yes. However, by the time we get to the late 90s, early 2000s, 
Japan is facing a succession crisis. Um, I mentioned before this, the really strict rules about who can inherit, you know, how the imperial family uh, continues its line. But this happy ending is really short-lived for the two of them. Um, Her difficulties with fertility only fed this national unease about the monarchy's potential extinction. It takes her a really long time to have a child. And by the time she does, they only have a daughter. So again, the prince still doesn't have an heir. What are they going to do? And you keep bringing this up, so we're finally going to talk about it. This monarchy has a very long history of concubines, which is how they would historically ensure the succession you know there so does that there mean that emperor. for 1500 centuries like per, you know excuse me being crude but they haven't had an infertile emperor not officially <laughs> interesting interesting <laughs> they maybe they didn't have an infertile emperor but it was the case that if the emperor's wife wasn't fertile that he could just take his pick of royal concubines and have a son that way this practice however was abolished in 1947 so no longer an option i think we could argue shouldn't need to be an option you know you have kids with your wife and one of them can rule but um at the time when this was abolished, it wasn't really seen to be a problem. You know, it was like this modernization of the monarchy and a succession crisis seemed really unlikely. Hirohito had three brothers. He himself had two sons and he had three nephews. So there's a lot of males that are in the, the direct line of successions. Should something happen, you seem to be okay. However, by 1999, only a few of these men were left and Akihito's brother had no children, and his younger son had only daughters. So the future seems solely to depend on Naruhito and Masako. To put that into um, clarity, the the emperor has no nephews, and he has two sons, but only one of his sons has children, but he only has daughters. So by 2004, Naruhito and Masako, like I said, they successfully managed to have a child, but she's a girl. So still have this problem where the emperor has three grandkids, no males. Actually, at this point, it got really tough for Masako. The palace barred her from making trips abroad, the media scrutinizing her every action. By 2004, she's just stopped appearing at public events altogether, and she's suffering bouts of depression, as you would. Like, this sounds incredibly difficult to go through. I mean, fertility struggles are difficult enough. Imagine doing it in the public eye where the pressure's on to not only have a child, but that child needs to be a male. You finally, like six years after you get married, you, or not six years, more than six years after you get married, you finally manage to have a child, but then you're made to feel like you failed because you didn't have a boy. I mean, this is happening in 2004. (laughs) Well, but culturally this is how it works right yeah no culturally this is still what's happening and a lot of this problem is because japan is following this really strict rule of succession you know i think i've mentioned a bunch at this point like this this rule that they put in place for the male line of succession so they're following what's known as an agnatic succession so it gives priority to or restricts inheritance of a throne to the heirs that are male or female descended from the original title holder through males only. So basically, this is male primogeniture at its strictest. Succession is restricted to legitimate born sons, grandsons, and male line descendants of an emperor. That's not really a wide gene pool to play with, especially when you're already restricting 
how wide that net goes of the imperial family. So Japan could, of course, change the law, right? That seems obvious. Change the law, allow women to take the throne. But a proposal to do just that met with fierce opposition from the, remember those nationalists I talked about who were kind of upset about Akihito's pacifist stance? They're also kind of upset about this idea of allowing women to inherit the throne. One former cabinet member called the imperial male line the precious, precious treasure of the Japanese race. So it's clear what he thinks about the, the women in the imperial line. However, this question is likely not going to go away anytime soon. You know, many in Japan actually worry, what does this look like to a modern world to explicitly bar women from the throne? Like, it's not a good look, you know? England has a queen, and she's changed the law to allow for female heirs. Why can't Japan? And recent events are only making this problem more glaringly obvious. So now we're going to go back to this whole thing that started this, this gossip item. <laughs> So not really gossip. Akihito is, or is until, was until a few few days ago, still the emperor of Japan. Um, and, but in 2016, he announced that he wanted to abdicate and retire. He said, when I consider that my fitness level is gradually declining, I'm worried that it may become difficult for me to carry out my duties as the symbol of the state with my whole being as I have done until now. I mean, at this point, he had already survived prostate, prostate cancer. He'd had heart surgery. Um, you know, he really wanted a clean succession, and he himself had to kind of wait around for a few years while his father's health was really uncertain, and a lot of people speculate that he didn't want to do that to his son. But again, these conservatives who are in power at this point are worried that the idea of an abdication is also going to open the door to another push for women to ascend the throne, because at this time, there's now one male heir his, uh, Naruhito's brother had two daughters, but then his, he and his wife, I think he's now 12. So 12 years ago, they had a son as well. So there's like one child that's male in this family that the future could rest on. And so clearly it seemed like an abdication would open this question of, okay, who, who could rule? So they didn't really want to have that conversation. So there's also the fact that abdication required a special act of parliament um, that was passed in 2017, and explicitly that law applies only to Akihito. So they haven't really solved this succession crisis. They've just cleared the way for Akihito to retire. And three years after he first announced this, so they're kind of making him wait. This is like an old, tired man who they're just like, keeping around for their own whims. Finally, uh, on April 30th of this year, he abdicated. So he was the 125th emperor of Japan, who notably, as I mentioned, his own father refused to abdicate after bringing his country to the brink of destruction. This man voluntarily left the throne to become what is now known as the emperor emeritus. So they kind of had to make up a title for him as well. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so Naruhito, who's now 59, uh, officially succeeded his father, who is 85. So, I mean, he's not ancient, but, you know, he's he's tired. He wants to be done. You know, Naruhito is very much seems to be in the mold of his father, so he's likely to continue this idea of pacifism, war remembrance, and his father's efforts to humanize the monarchy. But, like I keep saying, they have not solved this problem of the succession. There are only three male members left in the line of succession, so... Um, Naruhito has an 83-year-old uncle who doesn't have any kids, and he's got a, his 53-year-old younger brother and his 12-year-old nephew, Hisahito. So Japan is not 
likely done with this question of female succession because you have essentially one male left and he's 12. He's got to get busy, right? (laughs) Yeah. Because there are three other children in this in this line of succession but they're all women and so as soon as they get married they are no longer members of this imperial family and you know all of this together this 1947 rule that restricted the size of the royal family it restricted who could inherit these imperial titles all of this has combined and it's this interesting microcosm of Japan's greater um, demographic issues, you know. I think if you look at the photos from the uh, abdication ceremony, it's really interesting. There are three men on that stage. There's the emperor, mm. there's the emperor's brother, and the emperor's uncle because the 12-year-old was too young to attend the, the ceremony. And then when, and then that's because women aren't allowed to witness the ceremony. But when they bring the women in, then suddenly the family looks huge because. 11 of the current members of this family are women. So it's time to rewrite your role. Yes. So they've had some, I don't want to say bad luck with the birth of their children, but you know, I mean, this happened to England as well. I mean, you, you eventually get to a point where there just might not be a male in the line of succession. And when you've specifically barred women from succeeding, you either face the, the question of, well, do we really care so much about barring women from succeeding or do we just not want to have a monarchy anymore? And God forbid something happens to Hisahito, but they could be facing that question. So yeah, it's it's really interesting. And I thought it was a fascinating parallel to this journey that we talked about, the British royal family taking throughout the 20th century. And they've sort of decided to adapt to survive and the Japanese haven't quite gotten there yet. I mean, in some ways they have, but you could also argue that a lot of their adaptations were pushed on them externally. And Mm -hmm. then as they're trying to modernize, they're not quite really ready to let go of their historical traditions. And all of that was sort of brought to the fore by this abdication by Akihito. So like I said, I looked into it, I thought it was just going to be a gossip item, and I was like, there is something here. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. It's kind of interesting because you, you know, you mentioned this, what does the Western world think of this? It's, it's, it almost feels so incredibly stubborn. Yeah. Like, I wonder, especially these conservatives, you know, these nationalists who felt that the emperor was forgetting about Japan's proud history. I wonder if this is like their last gasp effort of you've taken away our traditions and our pride and this is all we have left is that we... We revere our males, and we don't let women inherit. That might be taking it a bit far, but it does seem a bit like there's stubbornness involved as well. And and ultimately, it's not up to the imperial family. That's what's really interesting. It's up to parliament to decide. That is interesting. So they may, well, like, what is the option if this family dies out? It's not like there's a, a cadet branch. I mean, all of these people have been declared no longer members of the family as they marry out. So Right, and a lot of the male lines of those cadet branches have died out. So there really isn't anyone left. There's essentially two men younger than the current emperor left in the family, one of whom is 12 years old. Mm-hmm. So essentially, say, so say, say the worst happens and they need a regency and so until he's 18 he you know or 
by the time he's 18. But I mean, this poor boy, the pressure is really going to be on him. And the emperor's own daughter can't inherit and her cousins can't inherit. So just one 12 year old boy where the entire future of the monarchy rests on his shoulders. And I'm not sure that that's entirely fair. I mean, we're just assuming that he'll one day get married and have well, what if he's gay? I mean, come well, on. I didn't want to say it, but I was wondering. I guess you just kind of power through. I guess. I think there's That's a lot of arguments to be made here about, and I don't think that this about you know female succession. I don't think that this question will get dropped. I think you know. Um, I was reading some some quotes from some of his people too, and um, Naruhito is really respected by the Japanese people because he's been fiercely protective of his wife especially as she's faced all this press scrutiny and you know he fully supports you know however she wants to handle her role he seems to very much love his daughter and so you know the people really respect him they they see that he really seems to cherish his family and I wonder if he will try to subtly use his position to push for this modern idea of women in power not necessarily maybe overtly because he can't but there's no way this question dies out. And, and it is a little bit interesting. You know, we talked about England as an example where Elizabeth has been queen seemingly forever. England doesn't seem worse off for it. And she's also changed the rules herself for women to inherit. But um, she's allowed to decree this, right? And then parliament, I think, has to agree. But they usually don't disagree with what she's saying. But... The emperor here in this case has no ability to say, hey, I decree that all females in my family can inherit. Like that has to be an act of law passed by parliament and it has to come from them. And I think that they have to feel that it comes from them. Yeah, I this is all actually really fascinating. I Isn't just, it? <laughs> yeah. I really just found myself going down this like rabbit hole of like recent history of, you know, everything that happened with Japan post-World War II. And at the time, you know, I think the allies felt that they were making the best decision for the world. Like first and foremost, we need, we need to demilitarize Japan and we need to really keep this monarchy in check and make sure, you know, for the next 20 years, they don't get any ideas about coming back into like full military power, but they sort of overdid it in a way where they've now sort of backed Japan into a corner where demographically they've sort of, you know, um, procreated themselves out of a existence or I guess haven't procreated is really the problem. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that this guy abdicates. I mean, I saw this article the other day and I was like, Oh, well that's interesting. The emperor is abdicating. I didn't realize there was only a can, not even a handful of people to come next. Well, I remember a couple years ago, there were all these um, articles about one of the princesses because, and I believe she's the daughter of um, Naruhito's brother. Yeah, because his daughter's only, like, I think she's like 17. But she was going to, she got engaged to her boyfriend, like her longtime boyfriend. And then all of a sudden, there was some minor scandal with the boyfriend's mother and then the boyfriend went to law school in the U.S. And so there were all these questions about whether they were still engaged. And she had like a press conference where she was like, I'm just going to think more about this question of marriage. And I was thinking about it like I think obviously some of it was in response to this minor scandal. But also maybe she decided, you know what, like because I have to give up my entire existence as I know it in order to marry this guy, I really need to 
take a little more time. And that's the last time I remember reading about the succession crisis and this idea that, you know, in the Japanese royal family, once you marry outside the family, like, that's it. You're, you're not royal anymore. So, but what's the deal? Like, she's, she's, doesn't want to leave the family? Well, like I said, I don't think you literally leave the family. Like, I don't think you're not allowed to, like, see them anymore. But I think, you know, she must have gotten a lot of pressure from her family about maybe this guy's giving the family a bad look. But also, I think it might have raised some questions about, like, you like this lifestyle that you have because you're royal and you're going to have to give that up. I don't know. I mean, maybe she didn't think about what job she wanted or, you know, I, I don't really know. I don't. I read about it, I think this was like a couple years ago at this point, but I think that she has to answer a lot of questions that most people don't have to think about when they get married. It's all very interesting. I don't know. I never even realized this was happening. But that's also the great part of this whole story is like all of this is happening in the background and like half the world is like completely oblivious or has forgotten that Japan has a monarchy because they really just don't get the same attention. No, they really don't. So there's never been an empress of Japan there has actually so this idea of male only succession is actually fairly new in the history of japan so it was only introduced with the meiji restoration Hmm. which i forget what year that was it was before um world war ii but not too i think it was in the 1800s maybe um but prior to that japan has had i think about eight female emperors oh so it's not yeah, like but only one about... of them only one of them actually was succeeded by a daughter um in other cases they were allowed to rule and then it went to like the next male heir but they've had female emperors in the past so if they are so torn about this idea of their own history maybe they just need to look back a little further i think i think i'm gonna guess if they want to keep the mon- the monarchy intact they'll have to make some changes i think so i think the day of reckoning has been postponed for now but i don't think i think now because you know when akihito was still in power even if he's 85 years old you can say okay well we've got four males in the line of succession well now you have three and really i don't think you should count an 83 year old man so you've got two that's it and you could have one yeah i mean hopefully they don't i mean I don't want to wish ill on this family, but that doesn't seem like a lot of room to play with. Um, but that's that's the very brief history of the last 70 years of Japanese monarchy. Well, I feel like maybe we should cover an empress or something. I feel because like we now should. I'm interested. I, I, I tell you, I really thought I was like, oh, I'll just do like a brief overview of like, you know, the I, I think the World War II stuff is really fascinating because I think it's directly led to the current crisis. Yeah. But I also was like, I'll just cover that. And then the more I was like, I forgot how interesting Japanese history is. <laughs> they have such wonder. a long history, too. I mean, also talking about them as the oldest surviving monarchy is so interesting. I do wonder if you hadn't had the U.S. interference, if they'd still have the concubine system. You know, that actually was abolished by Hirohito, though. So maybe they just felt like it was time to modernize. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that yeah. was interesting. Yeah. How many times can I say interesting? I it know. Was, I was like, how many times can I sit here and go, though. that was fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry if we're a broken record, but really, I mean, this was such a lovely surprise. Uh, such a deep well, I think. Yeah. We'll really definitely is. have to come back to it. Yeah, we will. For sure. Yeah. 
All right. Well, until next time. Until next time. All right. Monarchast is produced by me, Allie. And me, Claire. And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.